On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. That used to be considered the central task of leadership perpetuating the population. This beautiful race of people is going to survive on the earth. The one sin for which the penalty is national death, race suicide. When you decide to have a baby, do all you can to have a healthy baby. Previously on American Hysteria. We started all the way back with the Puritans and the ways that abortion really wasn't a focus for the churches, political leaders, or the citizenry at large. It was left in the hands of women, not necessarily accepted, but not illegal. But we also looked at how enslaved women were forced to give birth to increase the slave population, to produce more labor for the Anglo-Saxon Protestant upper class. We saw how resistance looked, the hushed community information networks and the midwives who provided medicines to induce miscarriage. We saw the panic around immigration that came just as the first abortion laws acted both as a means for the American Medical Association to take over the birth industry and as a way to protect Anglo-Saxon stock from being outbred by Irish immigrants. For part two, we'll see similar obsessions over population rates and race throughout the 20th century from different sides of a deeply complicated tangle of forces. Forces that all seem to have their eyes on the skies of a future American utopia, which included, perhaps most importantly, who should and should not give birth. So now let's start with a story. Just like our former star and flamboyant abortionist, Madame Restel, there was one charismatic woman who reigned supreme in the business of choice. Inez Burns was born in 1886 to an impoverished family in Philadelphia, working as a pickle packer at a local plant in her early teens. But Inez was a dreamer, certainly not content to let her star quality be pickled into complacency. So she set her sights on where else but Golden California, San Francisco in particular, a city growing more opulent and exciting by the day. Inez got a job as a manicurist, and possibly a sex worker, at the illustrious Palace Hotel, frequented by upper-class professional men of all kinds. 
part of the reason she was hired was that Inez was a real knockout. But even more than that, she had that audacious confidence and teasing charm. You know, the kind that, for whatever reason, turns rich and powerful men into putty in a woman's hands. Fond of the flash fashion of the moment, Inez wore corsets tightened to the point of a cartoonishly tiny waist, perhaps the tiniest in all of San Francisco. In what became a trademark move, after she finished a man's manicure, she allowed him to wrap his newly polished hands around the small cylinder of her waist, and they did so with boyish glee. She soon began an affair with one of her clients, a successful local surgeon named Dr. Eugene West. And she would soon learn that his main gig in the medical biz was performing illegal abortions. She also discovered that the women who sought out Dr. West were almost exclusively middle and upper class, mostly because his services were so expensive. What would amount to an entire month's salary for a regular worker? This meant that he was raking it in. And as their affair progressed, Inez wasn't exactly falling in love, but she did see an opportunity. Dr. West would eventually offer her a job as his assistant, a much better paying gig than she had at the Palace Hotel. And then there she was, witnessing a surgical abortion in person and witnessing the unhinged Dr. West in action, a man who was almost a show-off about how many abortions he could perform in one day. And to reach these personal goals, he would sometimes operate on two women at once, back and forth. I should also mention that he was absolutely blasted on cocaine the entire time. So unsurprisingly, he often made mistakes, and sometimes they were deadly. His reputation had been significantly tarnished when he was tried for the murder of Addie Gilmore in 1893, a woman on whom he performed an illegal botched abortion, and then dismembered the body and dumped it in the local bay. And yet, he continued to operate for the desperate women still willing to take a chance to get a choice. Once Inez was fully trained and able to operate on a woman herself, she was ready to move on from her life with the increasingly unstable Dr. West and start her own practice, one that would be very different from what she'd witnessed at his clinic. As she said her goodbyes, Dr. West was already distracted with his new assistant, some young woman he'd met on the ferry. Taking one last look around the office, she paused at his desk, looked over her shoulder, 
opened her bag and as slowly and silently as possible slipped his medical tools into her bag along with some medicines and walked out of his office briskly into her brand new life. But that glow, that smiling optimism, that bright future was about to go up in flames, literally. Flames fought their way to the sky, and buildings in San Francisco shuddered and collapsed. The preceding day, there had been an earthquake in Formosa. 24 hours later, San Francisco felt the shock, and then came the fire. An hour before sunrise, on April 18, 1906, the city shuddered and shook with a 7.9 magnitude earthquake that sparked several major fires that would destroy 80% of the thriving West Coast city, killing 3,000 people and leaving 300,000 of the city's 400,000 population homeless. But in the frightening moment that she felt the earthquake rumbling around her, she made yet another choice that risked and then changed her life and the lives of thousands of women. While sprinting out of her trembling house, Inez had grabbed the bag of tools that she took from Dr. West, escaping just as the building crumbled behind her. Large parks and beaches were then converted into makeshift camps that lasted for months and for some even years. Living in Golden Gate Park, Inez quickly discovered that women were desperate to end pregnancies that they quite clearly could not afford. Using what she had learned as an assistant to Dr. West, Inez began providing abortions to other homeless women, often at no charge. But those that she operated on were eternally grateful, giving her anything that they could, maybe $20, maybe a necklace. As the city rebuilt, so did Inez, and as her reputation spread, the clients began pouring in, and she was soon able to open her own office in the city. She saw housewives already stretched too thin, mothers afraid they might not survive another birth young women without husbands, mistresses of wealthy men in entertainment and politics, stars like Rita Hayworth, as well as nuns and sex workers. Her skill and bedside manner led to a positive reputation, and with her new rich clients throwing money at her, Inez was able to create a sliding scale for those who could not otherwise afford her services. Inez became larger than life, a character about town, mingling with the rich and famous, a gossip star in her own right. She was chauffeured everywhere in a limo, often seen stepping out on the red carpet of opera openings, heavy with diamonds, wearing ostrich feather hats and enviable designer fashions. 
honestly give this woman a reality TV show because check this out. Inez would also have two pretty extreme cosmetic surgeries before most people even knew what that was. First, she had her pinky toes removed so that she could fit into what were considered fashionable high heels that I guess were also super tiny. Then she had several ribs removed so that she could have that cartoonish hourglass figure permanently. I think it's worth saying that at some point she also hooked up with her granddaughter's boyfriend. TV producers, are you listening? She was making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but half of that was going to make sure she could continue operating in the city, including a whopping 12 grand monthly bribe to the San Francisco Police Department and five grand that she said, quote, went to every politician running for office. And of course, a nice chunk went to the mob and San Francisco Mayor Eugene Schmitz as well. With all these powerful groups making a cut of the cash, well, they were willing to look the other way when it came to abortion. That is, until Law & Order fanboy Edmund Gerald Pat Brown saw an opportunity in the character of Inez Burns and all that her kind had come to represent. Now, let's get this straight. Pat Brown was not running his campaign for San Francisco District Attorney on a platform of the Christian duty to save the unborn, but rather as an example of the tough-on-crime stance that marked his campaign and subsequent reign. His slogan read, Crack down on crime, elect Brown this time. When he sent the authorities to raid her practice and house, she would disappear through the many trap doors and secret tunnels that were built into both, able to evade charges of all kinds, until she was finally caught and found guilty of performing illegal abortions, which landed her with a seven-year prison sentence, with 14 more months added on for tax evasion. This was a serious shame, because Inez had been extremely good at what she did, in practice for 35 years, with almost no black marks on her record, after completing tens of thousands of surgeries. The rare woman who did experience any complications was immediately connected to a trustworthy doctor, and any medical costs incurred were covered by Inez, which was far better treatment than women received after these crackdowns, when safe abortions became far harder to procure, and pregnant people began resorting to tactics that endangered their lives. Mr. Pat Brown, who went on to win the California governor race and serve two terms, had this to say about Inez when thoughtfully recalling his years as her mortal enemy. Quote, She was a very good abortionist with a good reputation. Everyone thought she was a necessary evil. But when I became DA... 
Her business had become flagrant. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And now, back to the show. You women have been employed because the armed forces have called your husbands, brothers or sons. Each returning serviceman will get his job back when this war is won. And you women and girls will go home, back to being housewives and mothers again, as you promised to do when you came to work for us. Pat Brown's frustration with flagrancy was a feeling that existed far beyond the bounds of his relationship to Inez Burns. World War II had pushed women far out of the home and asked them to be both mothers and workers to replace the men sent to fight overseas. Finally able to explore a little life outside of housewifery, women walked the streets alone, mingled with returning soldiers, went out to see Frankie Sinatra screaming and swooning in enormous mobs in Times Square, a phenomenon we cover in our episode called Fangirls. Fashion was changing, morals and gender roles were loosening, women were getting in touch with their own sexuality, and along with carrying the nation through the war, the girls just wanted to have fun in a world that finally felt like it was their own. But ask any man, a politician, doctor, psychologist, clergy member, columnist, something had to be done to wrangle in these wild women. 
This battle was fought in many ways, including a great crackdown on abortionists, with powerful lobbies trying to neutralize the likes of Inez Burns and so many other underground providers that had been perfecting safe abortions for decades, even centuries. The mother was suddenly a towering aproned archetype, gliding, cookies in hand, across the sparkling linoleum of popular culture, elevated far above the slutty working-class gal that was presented as undermining the supremacy of the suburban nuclear family. The basis will be rye bread, mother's idea. She found that the spicy caraway flavor made a good contrast to the bland fish and cheese. So the edges won't harden and curl when toasted, and so they'll be easier to eat later, she cuts them lightly with a knife. This construction of motherhood was most jarringly reinforced by a new hyper-focus on what a mother does during pregnancy, what she eats, her physical activities, even what she feels and thinks. All of it could affect the little person growing inside of her that doctors showed on new ultrasound technology, which added to the arguments in favor of fetal personhood. We can see the relationship to motherhood change when we look at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, when Americans were introduced to a scientific revelation, an exhibit the creators simply called Life. Presented in a style reminiscent to that of P.T. Barnum's oddity sideshows, the pickled star of these babies in bottles, as they were jokingly referred to, was a fetus bearing two heads, which welcomed patrons into the room from a little basket held in the beak of a colorful stork statue. There were other exhibits as well that used real human tissues to show the stages of life. And there was little to no reaction to the unsanctimonious ways that they were displayed. They were new wonders of science, oddities all their own. In fact, those babies in bottles were actually taken on a sideshow tour across America. As Sarah Dubow observes in her book, Ourselves Unborn, A History of the Fetus in Modern America, by 1947, things began to look a little bit different at the post-war World's Fair, just as America was beginning to transform into the sparkling suburban utopia of the 1950s. The real embryos and fetuses that had been used before were replaced with wax replicas, and instead of a stork welcoming fairgoers, it was a transparent mannequin of a woman, a fetus curled inside her pregnant belly for all interested parties to see and ponder the sacred connection between a happy, peaceful, subservient mother and her future healthy bouncing baby 
By this time, a mother may have missed a period and begun to suspect she's pregnant. She can't be sure, but if she's a responsible person, she'll make a date with her clinic or doctor right away. Because the first 12 weeks are the most important a baby will ever go through. A decade before, there had been no mention of mother in the exhibit of scientific intrigue. But now she was the central character, even more so than the fetus, as each scene highlighted exactly what she needed to do to ensure a healthy, well-developed, happy, patriotic, capitalist little kid. A template for the great future of great America. Sarah DeBow highlights a review of this exhibit from Parents Magazine that was referencing a fictionalized girl walking in wonderment through the stages of life. Quote, she learns the significance of her menstrual period and how she can someday bear a child. She walks out content with her start toward womanhood. But in order to encourage this lovely motherhood, doctors and politicians were beginning to push horrific lies, like the fact that women who become pregnant must have wanted to become pregnant. It was a Freudian idea that the future mother's unconscious had made the decision, knowing better than the conscious woman what is best for her. One physician was actually quoted as saying, if we have learned anything in psychiatry, we have learned to respect the unconscious far more than the conscious, and we have learned not to take abortion requests at face value. The misogyny seething through politics and the medical establishment meant that authorities weren't going after untrained abortionists that were harming women anymore they began to focus on the women who sought out abortions. And in lurid trials and photographs printed in the newspaper, they condemned viciously any woman who went through with the procedure. They were seen as women refusing to do their patriotic duty, what they owed to the nation. It would take a very public abortion in 1962, one by a famous children's show host that would change the conversation around reproductive rights in major ways. Romper, bumper, stomper, tell me, tell me, tell me do. Magic mirror, tell me today of all my friends had fun at play. Today's a special day for Deanna and Scotty and Timmy and Alan and Terry and Indra and a special day for Colin and Tammy and Carrie and Beverly and Christy and Susie and Jonathan. And Sherry Finkbein was one of those archetypal mothers, the sweet-as-pie host of Romper Room, who began each episode with the Pledge of Allegiance, followed by hearty servings of milk and cookies for the kid actors, but only after they said together with Miss Sherry, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, amen. 
During her fifth pregnancy, the real-life Sherry was having trouble with morning sickness, headaches, and insomnia. So her husband found her something that was not yet available in America, a sedative that contained thalidomide. For Sherry, the meds worked really well, and she continued to take them on a daily basis. But one day, she heard a news story on TV about the obscure-sounding ingredient that she faintly remembered reading on that bottle. The drug, if taken during early pregnancy, had been linked to severe birth defects, especially of the arms and legs. Sherry went to her doctor immediately, who encouraged her to get an abortion at a time when abortion was only legal to save a mother's life. Hoping to spread awareness to others who might be pregnant, she did an interview with a local reporter who had agreed to keep her identity anonymous. Well, he didn't, and suddenly the beloved children's show host was thrust into a different kind of national spotlight. Suddenly, Sherry was flat out fired from Romper Room. She began receiving vicious death threats, and she actually had to utilize the FBI to protect her. The appointment that had been scheduled for her abortion was abruptly canceled by the hospital her doctor had contacted, and the court order he subsequently tried to obtain to allow the procedure to go through was not granted by the court. So Sherry and her husband thought they'd go to Japan, where it was easier to obtain an abortion, but her visa was denied. Finally, Sweden allowed Sherry to enter the country for the surgery, discovering that the fetus did indeed have extreme deformities to the arms and legs, something that America found out from the obsessive news coverage. I, I don't feel bitter for people who oppose us religiously. I only hope that they know, can feel that we're doing what's best in our case and, yeah. and, and could feel some of what's in my heart in trying to prevent a tragedy from happening. And then, within two years of Sherry's public abortion, an outbreak of German measles, also known as rubella, struck the United States, an illness that produced a fever and strange rash, but rarely went farther than that and could often be asymptomatic. But if a pregnant woman became ill with rubella, it could cause serious birth defects. This went well beyond women and mothers. This was something that affected fathers as well as taxpayers, who were said to have to bear the weight of those unable to care for themselves. There are a lot of complicated parts of this story. There is a lot to unpack, but it's important that we realize that this fear was a kind of turning point for Americans' opinion on abortion rights. Polls showed that more than half of the nation agreed that Sherry had done the right thing. This is an uncomfortable reality, one that has been used by anti-abortion activists as a sign that abortion is rooted in eugenics, a talking point that goes far beyond the stories of Sherry Finkbein and the national rubella outbreak. 
This is something we hear a lot now from anti-choice politicians like former presidential candidates Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, and Herman Cain, as they've critiqued the evil coven of Planned Parenthood and its founder, the white witch, Margaret Sanger. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together, why? Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Uh, I came of a large family. My mother died young, 11 children. That made an impression on me as a child. Mm -hmm. I was a trained nurse, went among the people. I saw women who asked to have some means whereby they wouldn't have to have another pregnancy too early after the last child, the last abortion, which many of them had. So there's a number of things that are one after the other that really made you feel that you had to do something. I was, uh, I was, what I would call a born humanitarian. I don't like to see people suffer. Now we'll go back in time again, to the first few decades of the 1900s, when Inez Byrne's career as a successful abortionist was just starting to take off. At the same time, a feminist activist named Margaret Sanger was popularizing the use of a revolutionary new medical advance called birth control, helping to set up family planning clinics that would become the Planned Parenthood organization that we know today. After working as a nurse and witnessing several botched abortions among her lower-class patients, as well as suicides among those who could not receive the procedure, she began to work to prevent the need for abortion itself, which she did not support unless it was a last resort to save the woman's life. Despite this, at the beginning, Margaret Sanger was pretty cool. She was getting arrested for writing frankly about women's sexual health in the era of the Comstock laws we talked about in part one. She was hanging with the likes of anarchist Emma Goldman and writer Upton Sinclair, working with an anti-capitalist mentality, fighting for the working class by providing family planning as a means toward upward mobility and eventually political equality. 
It was much more difficult, she believed, to achieve these things if you had too many mouths to feed. For the first part of our series, we left off in the late 1800s, just as a new utopian movement called eugenics was being pioneered by upper-class intellectuals who were applying Charles Darwin's revolutionary new theory, survival of the fittest, to the entire American human populace. Eugenicists believe that, just like with animals, traits deemed negative could be bred out of the nation, forming a perfect society, a society that just so happened to look like the educated, white, wealthy Christian men and women that were pioneering the field. These nauseatingly lofty ideas were not fringe, as is made obvious when we hear what Theodore Roosevelt was going on about in his 1905 State of the Union address, railing on what he called well-born white women. He charged them as criminals against the race who subscribed to willful sterility, the one sin for which the penalty is national death, race suicide. This idea of race suicide certainly often referred to the white race, but even more so, it was about the quality of those being born. Margaret Sanger was giving speeches about the need to slowly eliminate, quote, feeble-minded, idiots, morons, insane, syphilitic, epileptic, criminal, professional prostitutes, and others in this class and to, quote, apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is already tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. She would go as far as to endorse the 1927 Supreme Court decision Buck versus Bell, which allowed states to sterilize who they deemed unfit without their consent, leading to 200,000 of these surgeries by 1970. It's generally agreed that Margaret Sanger gravitated toward eugenics, at least in the beginning, because those in support were a far more powerful lobby than feminists. And they supported birth control, albeit for entirely different reasons, but they supported it nonetheless. Margaret Sanger was tolerating a whole lot of shit in order to get her mission to fruition, including speaking to a spin-off branch of the women's KKK in New Jersey, because they too were proponents of the power of birth control to control unruly populations. In her willingness to do whatever it takes, her legacy became suspect to factions on both sides of the political spectrum and remains so to this day. Because, rightly so, Margaret Sanger was fucking creeping out some black activists who felt like some nefarious shit might be going on. The evidence being, oh I don't know, three centuries of nefarious shit going on. 
Her mission to set up birth control clinics for impoverished and working class women had been extremely successful. But the fact that these offices were in predominantly black working class city neighborhoods led some activists to view this as a eugenic conspiracy to limit the black population or even to commit what was referred to as black genocide. For anyone of the thinking class, population talk was all the rage for the first half of the 20th century, and it affected the thinking of everyone who had time and money to consider theoretical futures. Prominent Black writer W.E.B. Du Bois was technically a eugenicist, too, writing in his 1932 article Black Folk and Birth Control that uneducated Black people unaware of this form of family planning were still breeding, quote, carelessly and disastrously, pointing out that some Black leaders saw this as positive, quote, Moreover, they are quite led away by the fallacy of numbers. They want the black race to survive. They are cheered by a census return of increasing numbers and a high rate of increase. They must learn that among human races and groups, as among vegetables, quality and not mere quantity really counts. Now, I'm not coming down too hard on W.E.B. Du Bois here, because he was a pioneer in his belief of the rights of any woman to have an abortion. And he believed this early on, writing in 1919 that, quote, the future black woman must have the right of motherhood at her own discretion. Like W.E.B. Du Bois, the NAACP and National Urban League were both outspoken in their support of these clinics, believing that birth control and even abortion were part of a movement toward potential economic and political power, that upward mobility that Margaret Sanger had talked about, a move toward racial equality. Most newspapers that circulated in the Black community at that time went as far as to print stories about deaths by botched abortions and supported, through their reporting, those Black doctors who were charged for giving abortions. We have to understand that we're talking about our survival and nothing else. Whether or not this beautiful race of people is going to survive on the earth, that's what we're talking about. Nothing else. Nothing else. But the support from places like the Urban League and the NAACP about black women's choices, about the idea that family planning allowed black people better opportunities and upward mobility, started fading a little by the 1950s and 60s as a return to strict gender roles permeated the overculture and then the culture at large. Reversing their previous support in 1965, Cecil Moore, president of the local NAACP chapter, condemned the Planned Parenthood program for Northern Philadelphia because 70% of its population was Black, labeling the plan, quote, replete with everything to help the Negroes commit race suicide. 
A black physician working in Pittsburgh, Dr. Charles Greenlee, made black genocide a talking point in the press again and again, telling Ebony magazine, quote, our birth rate is the only thing we have. If we keep on producing, they're going to have to either kill us or grant us full citizenship. He pressed that the solution to this genocide was to encourage black women to have more babies. Speaking out against birth control clinics, the head of the Florida NAACP chapter echoed these sentiments, quote, our women need to produce more babies, not less. And until we comprise 30 to 35% of the population, we won't really be able to affect the power structure in this country. But the other idea that was taking hold, that the Planned Parenthood clinics were set up as a means to control the black population, comes mostly from a now infamous quote from a Margaret Sanger letter. We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. Yeesh. That sure is damning. But when we zoom out and look at the entire context of that statement, we can see that she is very sloppily referring to the messaging around these clinics, aware of the fears circulating about racist eugenics. In the letter, she's actually writing to a group of Black ministers, asking them to reach out to their congregations with the right language to avoid any perception that these clinics were trying to limit the population. This was part of the Negro Project, a collaboration with W.E.B. Du Bois and others to provide birth control services for Black women in need. Questioning their intentions is absolutely necessary, and of course we can't know if there were ulterior motives, but in accusations of eugenic manipulation, we can miss something really important. We are not Margaret Sanger apologists here, but it is unlikely that these clinics were set up in primarily Black neighborhoods as an overt eugenic conspiracy by Margaret Sanger, because many were grassroots projects co-headed by Black pro-choice activists and staffed with Black doctors and nurses. When we rightly critique Sanger's fucked-up relationship to eugenics, we must also be careful not to erase the many others who were involved in the creation of these revolutionary spaces, nor should we take so much credit away from those who sought out birth control and family planning services that they wouldn't otherwise be able to access. Sharissa Dobbins Harris wrote in her essay titled The Myth of Abortion as Black Genocide, quote, The underlying assumption of this myth is that Black women lack the critical thinking skills to avoid falling into the pitfall of murdering their babies. No, these were well-informed women who were making choices for themselves and their families that had absolutely nothing to do with some bullshit theoretical utopia. 
According to Loretta J. Ross's essay, African American Women and Abortion, A Neglected History, quote, a distinct black feminist consciousness countered opponents to family planning. She quotes several prominent black feminist activists of the late 1960s, including Frances Beale, quote, Black women have the right and the responsibility to determine when it is in the best interest of the struggle to have children or not to have them, and this right must not be relinquished. In response to these new nationalist demands, feminist Tony Cade Bambara wrote, quote, I've been made aware of the national call to sisters to abandon birth control, to picket family planning centers and abortion referral groups, and to raise revolutionaries. To which Tony asked the question, what plans do you have for the care of me and the child? This is where we leave our story today. Just as the feminist movement was picking up and the evangelical religious opposition to abortion was just beginning and would soon reshape the conversation into a religious battle for the rights of the unborn at any and all costs. You can hear more about that in our episode called Televangelists. When we enter the present moment, in addition to this new spiritual rhetoric, is a familiar refrain, said a bit quieter than it was in the past, but still said nonetheless. In part one, we covered the great population panic that weaved through the early abortion debates after millions of Irish Catholic immigrants entered America, much to the distaste of the elite Anglo-Saxons. We can hear a familiar refrain now in conspiracy theories like The Great Replacement, spoken about on Fox News and written about in manifestos from violent racist shooters. A theory which alleges that the deep state is behind a population project to overrun and destroy Western culture, i.e. the white race, by allowing masses of Mexican immigrants into the country. That used to be considered the central task of leadership, perpetuating the population. If people are happy and confident, they'll have kids. They're vested in the society, and if they're not, they won't. That was their job. So they stopped doing it, and instead they just imported new people. That's literally what happened. Now, you're not allowed to point this out, of course. The media become absolutely hysterical when you do because it's so obviously true. What's interesting is that if something like this happened in any other country, say in China or Japan or Nigeria, the populations of those countries would likely revolt because you can't do that. The leaders of a country can't change the population of the country, especially in a democracy, without the consent of the existing population. These theories also point to the need for white people who can give birth to have enough babies to keep demographic control over the nation, 
Matt Schlapp, the leader of the Extremely Influential Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, recently spoke in response to the Great Replacement Theory and the idea of white race suicide, ideas that were invoked during a CPAC conference in Hungary, not long before Roe v. Wade was officially overturned. Here's what he said, quote, If you say there's a population problem in a country, but you're killing millions of your own people through legalized abortion every year, if that were to be reduced, some of that problem is solved. If you're worried about this quote-unquote replacement, why don't we start there? Start with allowing our own people to live. Anti-choice conservative rhetoric in the present day still invokes the dark mark of eugenics on the 20th century and invokes a racist boogeyman in Margaret Sanger, trying to link abortion with racism and ableism and present fetuses as a protected class worthy of civil rights, far beyond those of the pregnant person. Speaking in favor of forced birth, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, and Herman Cain have all invoked Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood as a eugenic organization specifically created to eliminate the black race. Conveniently, without mentioning the forced births of the past that black women had to endure for centuries. Throughout American history, Some have been forced to give birth to produce more enslaved workers, others to produce more well-born white babies, and some have been sterilized or discouraged from giving birth to those considered unfit. It's a means to keep racial and economic control over a nation, a long-term balance between having enough exploitable workers to serve elite interests and having enough demographic power to remain at the top of the hierarchy. Or maybe I'm just a conspiracy theorist. One thing is for sure, the history of the wars fought through the bodies of people who can get pregnant has been an extremely complicated one, has been problematic from all sides, has at times been racist and ableist, has been championed by vested interests that have nothing to do with a pro-choice cause, and everything to do with advancing careers, whether they be of doctors resting control of the birth industry away from midwives like Horatio Storer and the American Medical Association from Part 1, or politicians harnessing outrage to get ahead, like Pat Brown did with Inez Burns, like Anthony Comstock did with Madame Restell. Now, there are many people who genuinely believe in the sanctity of embryos. But this is not about them. This is about those in power who pretend to care, who use the bodies of people who can give birth as battlegrounds for their own population fantasies, fantasies of control, and fantasies of a terrifying utopia. This was American Hysteria. 
If you're looking for some resources to figure out how you can help in the fight for reproductive freedom, head to podvoices.help. That's podvoices.help. If you'd like to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria to get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that explores some of the stories from the cutting room floor of each topic. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, sound designed by Clear Como Studios, researched and co-edited by Riley Smith, and produced and co-edited by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting by Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And as the fight continues, may we find more and more ways to fight together against those who have everything to gain from tearing us apart. Fuck these assholes. I hope you have a great week.